so I'd like to just start by welcoming every, everyone to the Trinity Ballroom Hub, which is our research institute for the arts and humanities. And uh, this is the very first of the Constellation series of the new year. In, uh, this is our, our monthly program that we started last October uh, with the Creative Arts Practice Research Theme, which is one of the five arts and humanities themes, which is based here in the Longroom Hub. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been featuring people much like uh, our speaker this evening, Professor uh, Claudia Nascimento, uh, Tatinje Nascimento, um, who, uh, who is uh, an artist practitioner and an artist researcher. So we're very interested in the intersection and the entanglement, actually, of artistic practice and theoretical practice. So um, her biography, uh, you'll recognize, I think, a lot of the characteristics of the, the form of research and the form of work uh, that we're looking for. So Dr. Tatinje Nascimento uh, is herself a theater artist and scholar. She has a special interest in experimental performance, although we'll be querying that word uh, later in the, in the talk. Cultural negotiations on stage are also a special topic. Um, she did publish uh, a book on this, uh, Crossing Cultural Borders Through the Actor's Work, Foreign Bodies of Knowledge, with Routledge in 2007. She's received uh, numerous awards, uh, including the Consulate General of Brazil uh, in New York Arts Grant to direct uh, Pornographic Angel. She published uh, adaptations of Brazilian playwright Nelson Rodriguez's short stories, and she's performed uh, three continents, Europe, North America, in South America, and her articles appear uh, in an entire list of theatrical publications, uh, which is available there in your program. Um, but she has uh, been a huge feature here uh, in the School of Creative Arts. She's been able, uh, just in a short period on a visiting research fellowship, to bring a lot of her practice uh, from teaching. She is currently uh, a professor at uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and uh, will be speaking this evening about theater and performance. I should preface the conversation by saying that this is very new work for me. So I have just started it. Uh, I'm very interested in your questions at the end, as much as I'm interested in insight and input, because I still don't have very clear answers for anyone. So Jonas Barish opens his book, The Anti-Theatrical Prejudice, by bringing our attention to the fact that most epithets derived from the arts are laudatory. Praise is obvious when one describes a landscape as poetic, someone's voice as musical, or a body as sculptural. But this is not the case when we borrow terms from theater. When someone tells a friend to stop making a scene or a plane to the gallery, we hear ridicule in comments such as he made a spectacle of himself or that She's a drama queen. There are more, many more examples of the ways in which language borrowed from theater reveals a negative bias. Theater has met with prejudice since ancient Greece. In his argument against mimetic arts in Book 10 of the Republic, Plato describes the poet as parasitic, a citizen who is unable to execute important actions from leading war to building a table and therefore has no other alternative but to imitate. In time, the case against theater turned from accusations based on its presumed deceitfulness to condemnations that this art form is too truthful. In the 18th century, signatory of the United States Declaration of Independence and later principal of Princeton College, John Witherspoon, wrote in his serious inquiry into the nature and effects of the stage that drama is a picture of human life. 
and must represent characters as they really are. An author for the stage is not permitted to feign, but to paint and copy. Now, are not the great majority of characters in real life bad? Must not the great part of those represented on the stage be bad? And therefore, must not the strong impression which they make upon the spectators be hurtful in the same proportion? So, there is anti-theatrical prejudice at both ends of the spectrum, whether the scene on stage mirrors the world or stands as a reality apart, theater-going is deemed harmful. As prejudice stems from phobias, it may be more accurate to read both as fearful reactions to theater's potential danger. Covertly, those in both ends of the spectrum recognize that the theatrical aesthetic experience carries a transformative power. But my purpose here is not to trace the anti-theatrical prejudice's long history. Barish has already done that, and magnificently. So here I focus on the contemporary antipathy for the theater, because the prejudice that it meets with today does not do justice to its history as a key subject in philosophical debates, or as an art form that has incited riots at so many opening nights. What has always set the theatrical endeavor apart has been its capacity to move from the stage to the streets, between real and fictional, through material and virtual presences, away from and towards the body. Theater exists with or without text, speaks across gender, race, class, and more, and has always employed a broad array of performing and visual arts. I believe that the anxiety provoked by its shape-shifting property lies at the core of a long-standing anti-theatrical prejudice, and yet today's theater appears tame, confined to replicating a few old formulas. And some of the most innovative contemporary productions are generally viewed as performance rather than theater. I want to look at a few of the forces at play in the contemporary anti-theatrical prejudice. First, the insistence of the commercial métier and conservatories in replicating past theatrical forms with a twist. In particular, realism, but also other 20th century avant-garde movements, without regard for the fact that in their historical contexts, they represented rupture. Two, the establishment of theater academic departments and conservatory programs, which in many cases have suffocated theatrical innovation and robbed this ephemeral art form of its sense of urgency. And three, the subsequent rise of the term performance to describe so many contemporary theatrical works. Again, theater has, host, has always hosted an array of other art forms not just, not just literature, but also music, dance, painting, architecture, and most recently, the moving image. Still, and for too many, the dramatic text has remained as theater's defining characteristic since Aristotle's poetics. And just a parenthesis, I have nothing against the text or dramatic text, quite the opposite, but it's always good to clarify. The term mise-en-scène, or the practical decisions of how to stage a play emerged in the 19th century. 
At that point, mise-en-scene was at the service of a two-world theory, the premise that the art should represent, give appearance to aesthetic ideas. And so, to stage was to render visible the picture of the author's ideas, that the author's ideas created in the reader's mind. Theater's dependence on text is clear in this sort of argument. It was only at the turn of the last century that the literary text of the play ceased to be the sole basis of performance, and the staging of plays became elevated as an artistic activity. In the early 1900s, Gordon Craig redefined mise-en-scene as a strategy of creation and not of representation. Though the application of the two-world theory to theater has been contested since then, the performative turn, that is, the notion that the theatrical event consisted both of mise-en-scene, meaning the preparations for the production, and the moment of the actual production, appeared only in the 1960s and 70s. Such turn included the acknowledgement that the, and I quote, the intentions of the mise-en-scene and the actual occurrences during a performance are frequently incongruent. That is, that even if the mise-en-scene provides a strong framework, it cannot account for the unpredictability of live performance, the encounter between actors and spectators as co-subjects of the theatrical event. In summary, while the two-world theory bounded mise-en-scene to representation, the performative turn grounded the theatrical experience in the event, in the here and now, in the active relationship between actor and spectator that Erika Fischer-Hichter calls the feedback loop. The performative turn necessarily called for new developments in theater theory. Erika Fischer-Hichter writes that where the concept of work of art is accompanied by terms production and reception, the notion of event is complemented by mise-en-scene and aesthetic experience. As the definition of reception not only moved away from a passive model, but toward an interest in the activity and in the context of the audience itself, the use of semiotics to read a performance text no longer proved sufficient. Scholars moved to also employ phenomenology as a means of comprehending the theatrical as an ephemeral, experiential, unstable, and self-constitutive event shaped by the co-presence of actor and spectator. Theater became event rather than an artistic endeavor fundamentally connected to the interpretation of a given dramatic text on stage. At this point, I have a confession to make. I admit that most of the productions that I have attended over the past 20 years or so were incredibly uninteresting. I often tell my students that when theater is great, it is so overwhelming and so powerful that it gives you the energy to endure the next 100 boring productions in the hope of repeating that experience once again. In spite of the baffling large number of standing ovations I've witnessed in recent years, I know that I'm not alone in my disappointment. If they hadn't been invited to be here tonight, I know that the many sleeping husbands at straight plays on Broadway and other reputable venues would side with me. 
The contemporary spectator identifies the theatrical experience as predictable and stifled. In short, boring. And this may be the reason why so many artists do not call their works theater. This was certainly not the case at the turn of the first half of the 20th century. Yes, theater productions used to provoke riots. In his, um, and this week we had upstairs that installation with James Little, is that his name? about the riots in 1907 at the Abbey Theater around Playboy of the Western World, and I was like, yes. Uh, in his 1898 essay, Assemblist Parse, critic and poet Arthur Simons wrote angrily about a strange new play called Ubuhua, written by an even stranger and very young Monsieur Jarry. <coughs> uh, Simons told readers that of, if of little importance in itself, Ubu is of considerable importance as a sy symptom of the tendencies now agitating the minds of the younger generation in France. The play has the crudity of a schoolboy or a savage. What is, after all, most remarkable about it is the insolence with which the, a young writer mocks at civilization itself sweeping all art along with all humanity into the same inglorious slot pail. The performance has been given twice over before a crowded house, howling but dominated, a house buffeted into sheer bewilderment by the wooden laugh of a gross, undiscriminating, infantile philosopher pantaloon. In time, as we know, Jarvis play about the travails of a very vulgar king would be recognized as a foundational work of theater's historical avant-garde. Another great riot story, the opening night of Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author, a play about a family of characters left unrealized by their author and who then interrupt the rehearsal of another Pirandello play to demand that the director and cast stage their story. Joseph Farrell comments on that opening night in Rome, 1921. The performance ended in a riot. Apparently, the audience was restrained at the end of the first two sections of the play, but a torrent of booing broke out at the end of the performance, and an ugly crowd gathered around the, the theater, waiting for the playwright to come out. At midnight, Pirandello wanted to return home, avoiding, if possible, the mob. It was advisable to, to go out by a side entrance onto the alley, a dirty alleyway full of dead cats. He went out with his four-year-old daughter on his arm. He was recognized as soon as he stepped under a lamppost. People gathered around him to defend. Beautiful women with painted lips jeered and repeated, madhouse. Elegant young men with white ties sneered and shouted insults. Even the local police did not know whether to intervene in favor or against that madman, Pirandello. <coughs> like Chekhov's The Seagull, six characters met with success only at its second opening night. These two accounts may be amusing, but I want to put them into perspective. So, Jarry, Ubuwa, and Pirandello, by offering you one more example, this time from 2011. Uh, Romeo Castellucci's production on the concept of the face regarding the Son of God. The performance, 
The performance begins with two actors on stage, an aging father and his son. Behind them, the audience sees a large projection, projection of Italian Quattrocento painter Antonella da Messina's portrait of the Christ. The father can no longer control his bowels, so the son repeatedly cleans him and after him. In a second moment, children enter the stage and throw quote-unquote grenades at the painting. We understand that with the use of sound effects. The face be begins to sweat excrement. In the final image, the line, you are not my shepherd, is written over Christ's face. I should note that while far from realism, the first part of Castellucci's production evokes naturalist acting like no other I production I've seen. Uh, it, th there's really very, very fine work in terms of tempo rhythm. Uh, there's like little freezes, but it, and the actors speak on stage not loud enough for the audience to hear, but it's done in a very studied way, so you catch only one word or another, just sufficient, just enough for you to understand what is happening, but we sort of forget that we are in the theater. It's really as if we're peeping into this person's house. Protests against this piece did not happen at its opening night, like six characters or Ubourois, but for several evenings after a Paris court rejected banning the production. The protests appear to have been organized by the far-right Christian group Civitas and backed by Renouveau Francais, French Renewal, a nationalist and Catholic group. So this is what happened during the production after the, the court declined to ban the piece. After the first day of the manifestations, they had to put a metal detector in the theater and were apprehending a series of knives and even a gun was apprehended in one of the performances. And I think it is clear, right, that they were protesting because it was the face of Christ on stage. Okay. for violence, I find it important to identify and understand which performances move us today, why, and principally how. Let us not simply dismiss the religious fanatics that came to Castellucci's performances in Paris with knives and guns, but try to understand what is it about theater that gives it the potential to, the potential to be taken so seriously. It is clear to me that it is not that it is a hotbed for illusion, but rather it is its ability to turn the aesthetic experience into reality, and with that to make us confront belief systems and the status quo. Going back to six characters and the seagull, it is not accidental that these are plays grounded in the meta-theatrical. They wanted to comment on theater. <coughs> 
We know that the historical avant-garde was dissatisfied with the theater of their time. They proposed writing in unusual forms and produced many manifestos and essays. For example, in 1896, Javier wrote a short piece pointedly titled Of the Uselessness to Theater of the Theater. While designer Adolf Akia published the essay How to Reform Our Staging Practices in 1904, my dissatisfaction with theater is not original and it is not new. How should we consider metatheatrical plays that not only failed miserably at their opening nights, but also take failure as their plot's point of departure? The success of the Siegel's second production established realism as an important avant-garde movement, but its subsequent status as a canonical play erased the innovation and unrest that it brought to the audiences of its time. Second parenthesis, I have nothing against realism, just against realist productions and quotation marks. I asked myself how the success of a play about failure led to the failure, to the watering down of its power as an avant-garde piece. The Seagull is, and it is not, a play about a mother and a son, because Oedipus and Jocasta had already been main stage characters in the story of Western civilization. It is, and it is not, a play about class and love and celebrity and loss and disappointment, because audiences had long been hearing similar stories. It is, and it is not, a play about failure, even if too many contemporary productions state Drekliev's play as a fiasco, but often do not question why. Most directors do not even attempt to reinvent Chekhov's gesture of foreshadowing what would come next in theater, that is, symbolism. The answer to the question, why does Treplev's play fail, is key. In the play, Chekhov asks us to ask questions about failure to signal one of the greatest maladies that would follow lack of competence. That is, Treplev's core problem. The young dramatist and director can conceive of a new theater, but he does not have the competence to execute his ideas. And so his new experimental take, put on a makeshift stage by the lake in his Uncle Soren's decaying stage, has no alternative but to fail miserably. Treplev is an amateur. Apart from an exposition on the need of competence in mise-en-scene and beneath the unfolding of plot-driven social-economic commentary and psychological threads, Chekhov exposed the theater at the crossroads, past, present, and future. I explain. If the mother in the play, the actress Arkadina, represents a dying romantic theater and its star system, and her son, Treplev's failed experimental performance show us a glimpse of symbolism, the theatrical moment that would soon follow. Chekhov's brand of realism stands in between the theaters of the past, the mother, and the present, her son. The playwright's genius and courage are transparent. He knew and he told us that realism as an avant-garde movement had an expiration date. In this revelation, we find part of what feeds today's anti-theatrical prejudice, 
a self-indulgent reproduction of past forms without much regard for their contents and contexts. This theater no longer reproduces the real, but reproduces itself. Realism represented rupture and not the familiar. On stage today, we see a brand of theatrical realism that is derivative, sprinkled with a few non-realistic elements, but hopelessly devoid of innovation and urgency. It does not respond or reflect our time. Born out of a desire to capture reality and not coincidentally in parallel with the rise of modern psychology, the realism imagined by Chekhov already pointed to its end at the moment of its inception. So, engrossing the discussion on failure, Chekhov points to the fact that the death of realism as an avant-garde movement had already been set in motion. Audiences would soon have to confront their very comprehension of what is the real. We live in a time in which, maybe regrettably, nothing is impossible. If spectacles of horror and collapse enter our lives on a daily basis, what kind of reality do we need to see on stage? It seems to me that the contemporary spectator searches for realness that exists at the intersection between non-art reality and aesthetic <coughs> reality. The performative turn contributed to the dissolution of boundaries within the arts and between art and non-art. Such recognition seems to resolve the age-long debate as to whether theater is rooted in illusion or if it is too truthful. The performative turn was a necessary shift, one that pushed theater scholars to fashion a new language that could speak about works that fundamentally depended on liveness, to discuss the feedback loop arising from the co-presence of actors and spectators, to speak about the presence of new technologies, and to speak about the exit of text as theater's defining element. It was at that moment that performance studies came to be. And, and, but before we, we talk about that, let, let me just make a little introduction of how two 1950s artists uh, described their own pieces. In 1958, pa painter Alan Kaprov coined the term happening in his essay, The Legacy of Jackson Pollock. As a multidisciplinary form, happenings were the precursors and directly influenced the rise of the term performance art. In the essay, he discussed the act of painting in Pollock, in which, I quote, dripping, slashing, squeezing, daubing, and whatever else into a work placed an almost absolute value upon a diaristic gesture. Proposing that the action of the body of a visual artist be considered an integral part of the work of art, and that thus movement be seen as subject and also as artistic object, Kaprov closes the essay by stating that young artists of today no longer need to say I am a painter or a poet or a dancer. They are simply artists. To Kaprov, all is performance and artists do not need to subscribe to any particular category. Some six years before the publication of his essay, composer John Cage, choreographer Merce Cunningham, visual artist Bob Rauschenberg, and musician David Tudor 
presented at Black Mountain College what would, be, would come to be known as the very first happening, theater piece number one. And I underscore the fact that its creators chose to use the word theater in the piece's title. Cage said, music is an oversimplification of the situation we are in. An ear alone is not a being. Music is one part of theater. Focus is what aspects one's noticing. Theater is all the various things going on at the same time. I have noticed that music is liveliest for me when listening, for instance, doesn't distract me from seeing. So, for both Kaprov and Cage, happenings were inherently multidisciplinary, but were they more so than theater? So back to how this discussion moved from the art world to the realm of scholarship. In part because the first wave of American avant-garde created works outside of traditional theatrical buildings and attributed greater emphasis to elements other than the text, theater scholars did not promptly engage with these pieces. On the other hand, these experimentations received immediate attention from art critics such as Rosalie Goldberg, who proposed the category performance art and in 1979 published the book Performance, Live Art, 1909 to the Present. The volume traces the relationship between the movements of the historical avant-garde and performance art. And by taking the lead in the conversation, Goldberg effectively brought multidisciplinary artistic works of the historical avant-garde to her field of stu study, the fine arts. In the process, she recategorized avant-garde theatrical pieces from futurism, Dada, and surrealism, for example, as performance, and experiments from the New York scene of the 1960s and 70s came to be treated as performance art. The recategorization of avant-garde pieces in particular made it seem as if multidisciplinary works are, by definition, performance and not theater. I counter that there is no reason not to consider several performance art and performance works as belonging to contemporary theater. It would be contradictory to eliminate the possibility of seeing them as works of theater given that, as I stated earlier, theater is a creative field that has always involved other art forms. Except if you still hang on to the idea that theater is limited to replicating certain kinds of acting and certain kinds of text. To be fair, performance art and performance studies arrived in response to serious shortcomings in the professional theater métier and theater studies. Theater has a very short history as an academic discipline. In the mid-18th century, the anti-theatrical prejudice was rampant as at institutions of higher education. I already mentioned John Witherspoon's opposition to theater during his time as principal of Princeton College. His contemporary Yale president, Timothy Dwight, warned his students that to frequent the theater was to lose their souls. It is not difficult to understand why the discipline of theater studies is barely over a century old. In the United States, the first theater scholars received their educations in literature and taught drama in English departments, which are housed in the humanities and not in the arts. As such, 
drama was considered to be one of the branches of literature, which in turn, and in association with academia's discomfort with the ephemeral, further reinforced the notion that the study of theater consisted of textual analysis. Additional concerns about theater study subaltern position privileged, uh, limited the scope of research to works perceived as high art. As Marvin Carlson explains, through the development of Western literary and academic studies, a relatively small number of basic writings, almost exclusively European, and indeed largely from classic Greece and modern England, France, Germany, and perhaps Spain and Russia, almost exclusively created by men, made up the body of material with which any educated person was expected to have some acquaintance and upon which most academic writing and research was based. Carlson continues, inevitably, it has been the plays offered by the elitist theater that have survived in the canon and dominated future histories and scholarly studies. And this is not simply a 19th and 20th century phenomenon. The offerings of folk and fair theaters from earlier eras have equally been equally neglected. It was not until the late 1980s that theater conferences featured panels in popular and lowbrow theatrical forms. The reiteration of the canon in conservatory programs adds a layer to this problem. Graduate students learn how to replicate old mise-en-scene formulas and consciously or not, reinforce exclusive casting criteria and so perpetuate an aesthetics that determines who should be visible on stage. These young professionals guarantee that elitist definitions of high art are upheld as they enter the professional métier. In short, academic departments as well as conservatory programs effectively contribute to privileging the canon in a cycle that is self-justifying and self-replicating. The field of performance studies proposed to break this cycle and to bring to the table knowledge not only from the humanities and the arts, but also from the social sciences. Carlson concludes that if at first performance stu studies establish itself in opposition to theater, it is through the medium of performance studies that theater studies have developed some of the most, of its most productive recent research into cultural and social contexts. Truly, the shift in analytical perspective from theatrical performance as object to theatrical performance as event has been of incalculable importance in subsequent theater studies. I hope that it is clear that my point is not to downplay the importance of performance studies and its contributions, nor to dismiss the particular characteristics of other art forms. But I have to challenge the renaming as performance of so many works that do not stray from what has long been understood as theatrical. That would be to agree with reducing theater making to a refashioning of dead conventions, and that is artificial. The following speech is from the 1950 film All About Eve, in which actor Gary Merrill speaks to an, to an aspiring actress. Listen, Junior, and learn. You want to know what the theater is? A pleaser. 
there's magic and make-believe and an audience that's there. Donald Duck, Gibson and Arnold Ranger, Sarah Bernhardt and Poodle's Hound, Rotten Fontaine, Betty Grable, Rex the Wild Horse, Eleanor Abuse, they all fear. You don't understand. You don't like them all. Why should you? The theater's for everybody, you included, but not exclusively. So don't approve or disapprove. May not be your theater, but it's theater for somebody, somebody. I just asked a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you the best and most successful young director in the theater? The theater, the... Okay. Like the actor, some, I'm just closing. Like the actor in this movie, I prefer to see the theater as Polish director Jerzy Grotowski used to describe it. As a chain made of many links, a long string of styles, points of departure, forms, crafts, and made for different kinds of audiences and tastes. Because I am a pedagogue, I'm very interested in seeing how theater will unfold as the next generation of choreographers or directors or writers or composers or architects or musicians or painters or, and many other mores, bring performances to theaters and streets and basements and tents and living rooms and corners and screens and many other places and spaces even if these artists identify with fields other than theater. There is a good chance that I will call it theater still. Thank you. <laughs>